Well, that's just wonderful. We haven't said a word and you've already clapped. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if life was like that all the time? My name's Rhoda Roberts. I'm the Head of Indigenous Programming here at the Sydney Opera House. Um, and firstly, thank you all for coming to this session. Uh, you're going to be wowed by these amazing women. But I'd also like to acknowledge that we are on the lands of the Gadigal, Namangama, Niatali, Naranga, Panji, Jaminka, Taklia, Niau. We welcome you to these lands and of course we acknowledge uh, the custodians of the Gadigal lands, one of the first frontier areas of this great country. I'm a Widjibal woman from northern New South Wales of the Bundjalung Nation. I'm 2,500th generation Widjibal woman. And our topic today is looking at we belong to the land. Um, I guess when we look at land, we look at also our land and our sea sovereignty. We honour, like many across the globe, I guess the way we honour land and sea is a bit like how many would honour a cathedral, a, a synagogue, a temple, a mosque. Our land is our mother and uh, she's in a, a dangerous situation. And so today we're hoping that the way that we view belonging to country is through a very different lens that maybe many of you haven't heard. We see ourselves as custodians. We certainly don't own country, it owns us. But I guess for our young people, it is a, a devastating time. For thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, I could go forever, we have looked after country, we've been the custodians, and now we're facing a time that if the song line, the song cycle, the story, the way of obligation and maintaining country was not passed on, our next generations would be devastated because that is their mapping, that is their belonging, that is knowing who they are and where they belong. So as every elder passes, another library is destroyed in our communities. And it's pretty amazing when you think that for the period which is often referred to as the silences or the outlawed time when the policies dictated that the song cycles through language could not be passed on, well, the world has turned and we now can do this. So we're at a very vital period of time for communities to ensure they maintain and retain that knowledge and continue that custodialship of keeping country. So today you'll hear from two women, and I guess one of the things that um, both women bring is that while they've been working through environmental issues, one of the big things that we've noticed is, whether it's major discussions around the globe, very few opportunity has been allowed uh, for a different lens for us to look at how climate change is affecting our very culture, our spirituality, our economies and our communities. Um, and so can you please join me in welcoming Amelia Telford and Crystal Lehman. Amelia. <laughs> the gorgeous Amelia, I've got to tell you, she's Bunjalung, well, you know. <laughs> And um, she comes from northern New South Wales. She is the National Director of the SEED Indigenous Youth Climate Network, and she works with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. 
Amelia supports Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. She's got a huge voice across the country about how we can look at climate justice and environmental justice. She was awarded the NAIDOC um, Youth of the Year Award in 2014. In 2015, she was the Australian Geographic Young Conservationist of the Year, and in 2016, she was the Bob Brown Young Environmentalist of the Year. And she is really building that sustainable future for us. And all the way from Alberta, the Beaver Lake Cree Nation in Canada, is uh, Crystal, and Crystal is the Treaty Coordinator and Communications Manager for the Intergovernmental Affairs and Industry Relations Department for Beaver Lake Cree Nation. There's been a lot of focus on the treaties in Canada in the last um, few years, but particularly looking at issues regarding tar sands and how that has been extracted in Alberta for oil and um, your community in 2008 started a campaign and a um, legal action against the, the tar sands. So we're going to hear from Amelia first and I just wanted to ask, just on a very personal level, what does country, what does belonging to land really mean to you personally? It's really hard to sum up in a short sentence, um, but I think really my whole entire life, um, my parents instilled values in my brother and I around caring for the land and respecting it for all that it provides for us. And I think, you know, what I continue to learn more and more about is that if our land isn't healthy, then our people aren't healthy. And I think that's, you know, what we need to think about when we think about all these issues that we're going to be talking about today. You know, what's the use in having our land if we don't have our people? And if we don't have our people, you know, they're, they're interconnected. Yeah. And um, you'll hear another uh, discussion from Amelia. What we'll do is uh, the, the ladies will get up and give a 10-minute talk. And at the end of the session, we're also going to go to questions and answers. So if you've got any questions, just have a think about them. Crystal. Beaver Lake, it sounds so fabulous. What does country <laughs> mean to you? It actually is pretty fabulous. Um, every single thing that a human being needs to survive is right there. Um, the best and most um, articulate way that I can put it is, is actually um, words that come from um, my Uncle Ron Lehman, who is a fantastic man who's done some great things as, as far as helping to write the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, but he says, he says this, and it's, it's very simple, um, that, you know, so answering the question um, about belonging to the land, it's, it's very literal. The bones of our ancestors are in and of the land. That's why our land is not and will never be for sale. Um, so it's a very literal sense um, when we talk about belonging to the land. It's very simple. It is very simple. And it's very simple. I can imagine how when we consider and often talk about land being mother, I feel we must be the worst, you know, we haven't cleaned up our bedrooms, <laughs> really. Can you now um, please welcome Crystal? She's going to give her 10-minute presentation. Um, so I'm going to actually start with a three-minute video. I didn't want to. I didn't want the 10 minutes to be about um, our litigation. So I actually have a video from my community um, 
my uncle Al, I just want to put some context to the video. My uncle Al Lehman, who was the man who launched litigation back in 2008, was chief of our community for 35 years, um, retired, and you'll see a woman in the, in the video um, carrying medicine and talking about the land being our church. That is my aunt, who is now the leader of my community and leading our people and leading this legal action. Um, the, the children in, in the video, um, in the grass, there's a little girl running around in the grass. That, that's my baby, um, and my son is, is, will be in, in the video as well. So you can go ahead and, and play the, the video. Yeah, this is an old well. This is the first well that they punched in the reserve here. When they punched it through, uh, trembled and shook hands, shook everything. My community is located in the middle of two of the three tar sands deposits. Every square kilometer in those deposits that fall within our traditional hunting territory have been leased out to industry. Without um, the Canadian government uh, following through with their duty to consult with the Beaver Lake Creek. Um, we called this the island because it was surrounded by water. Oh, the water used to be here? Yeah, it used to be like right where the tree started. That was all water. It was mountain and the rest of the lake. Now there's no water. I knew when I was a child. Take a cup, you could take a container. I turned in water just right to the end. That's, that's no longer possible. We were the first environmentalists. We were the first scientists. When you take stage especially, you don't take the root. You leave the root in it. Because it regrows from the root. When you pull the root, you're pulling the root. This is your whole church. That's what I was told when I was born. This whole world is here. We pray, we say and ask him, and we are thankful for the great hope. As we pull down the river of life, we have to defeat the board that we hang on to. That's what is keeping us full of our dreams. And that water, we call that the milk of the earth. We're airlifting our babies the local hospitals for drinking contaminated water. We're not going to have anywhere to run away to because we are from here. We are from this land. Indigenous rights, treaty rights, are the last stronghold that we have. As of March 28th of 2012, the Beaver Lake Creek set historical precedence first community to ever be granted a trial in the lake petroleum industry in traditional hunting territory. The provincial and the federal government has tried every trick in the book um, to have this case thrown out. It had to happen. I mean, somebody had to stand up and say, whoa. And in our situation, it's, it's the small guy. I guess to do that. 
The only thing that's going to stop us from winning this lawsuit is money. And so here, the nation's poorest people are carrying one of the most historically precedent-setting litigations on their back. And it's up to the nation to get behind our people and support that. I'm sorry. I, hi. Sorry. <laughs> um, just in case you're wondering why I'm crying. <laughs> um, I have relatives here that came to my community last July. And it's really good to see them again. Um, <laughs> um Miasin Punapitagisago, which is Squatame, Pitagway, Kuo, Squatame, Wewe, Crystal Layman, Sigas, when a Miskageka, Nihiao, Piagoskanos, Tesamao, Yosiwi, when Nagatasik, Tataminan, Yeniwak. Good afternoon from the doorway in to the doorway out. My name is Crystal Layman, Beaver Lake Cree Nation, Treaty Number Six, and I'm grateful to the people of this land here on the unceded territory of the Karagal people. Um, the Beaver Lake Cree Nation's case uh, represents a growing understanding that through Aboriginal title and inherent and treaty rights, Indigenous rights as the last stronghold to protecting our environment is the strongest uh, legally binding strategy to stop the expansion of tar sands at the source, including all of the associated pipeline infrastructure coming out of Alberta, Canada, to bring this landlocked resource to international markets. Um, the very essence of who we are is in the land and waters and all that encompasses that. And as women, we are the keepers of the water. Nipipamatsuin, water of life. Um, the milk of our mother, providing all of the nutrients that we need to survive. And as women, it is our responsibility to take care of that. It is our innate responsibility because we are givers of life. And it's not by chance that women carry life in water. It's not by chance that that first water is what welcomes life into this world. And just the same as it is for us, as human beings, it is just the same for Ogawi Mao Aski, our Mother Earth. And the minute that we take those two concepts and we put them together is the minute that we'll be a little bit better off in this world. If we create exclusion, we will not experience inclusion. This is no longer an indigenous people's problem. If you breathe air and you drink water, this is about you. Nia, me, I do this for my children because I don't want to be that mother whose children ask her in the future when the damage to our mother is irreversible. Mama, how come you didn't do anything? 
I have a responsibility to my elders, my ancestors, my family, the rights that my people fought and died for, my children, but above all, a responsibility to our one true mother. And as a woman who has no mom, I was told by an elder in a moment where I was pitying myself about not having a mom, Nathans, my daughter, as long as you have Ogawi Mao Aski, Mother Earth, you will always have a mom. Love her, nurture her, take care of her the same as she has done for you. We, as a whole, as a collective, must commit to consolidating our efforts in the collective control of our natural resources based on the principles of people's participation, gender equality, environmental and social justice, self-reliant and sustainable management systems while maintaining natural law and the systems rooted in that and not in the capitalist development. Respecting Mother Earth and that includes viable solutions as opposed to false solutions to climate change. Viable solutions are necessary and they're urgent. We don't desire a low carbon economy. We need a low carbon economy led by renewable energy if we have any hope for the next seven generations. Our mother has provided every single thing that we need to survive outside of her without having to be invasive of her. So in our communities, we are demanding green economies defined by us that put a stop to the capitalism of Mother Earth. We are demanding systems that are founded on our right to self-determination our permanent sovereignty over our traditional lands, territories, and resources, forests, water, and everything that sustains life. And we're doing this not only for us, but for all future generations, no matter race, color, or creed. And our elders told us that this wouldn't be easy, but they said that it would be worth it. And my goal as an Indigenous woman is empowerment, motivation, and the instilling of responsibility. And your responsibility is to now take what I have shared and be good allies. Working hard to create a perfect solidarity puzzle that is inclusive of all humanity. Reminding yourself each and every morning before your feet touch Mother Earth that we are all human beings having a human experience. And if I influence just one person in this room today, then it was worth leaving my children. And as a single mom raising two children, the biggest question that I have is when did it become okay that we had to choose our ways of knowing and being. As mothers, we had to choose whether we're at home with our children 
over A, feeding our families, and B, being moms. So I'm gonna leave you with this and it comes from the Lakota people. Honor those who came before us, meeting the needs of the present generations, not compromising the future so that the coming generations are able to meet their own needs and guide our vision and renew each cycle of life. Thank you and I'm grateful to each and every one of you, all my relations. And we'll get to Arts Crystal. Lots of questions after we hear from Amelia. I'd like to start by acknowledging that um, we are on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation um, and express my gratitude um, to my ancestors, to our old people, um, aunties and uncles who've worked really hard to be where we are today. I don't know if anyone else can feel it, but um, the last couple of hours today and then now being in this room, um, I think it's really going to show me that we're at a really crucial time in, in history, um, being on this stage with Ani Rhoda and Crystal um, and um, brothers and sisters in the room and aunties and uncles in the room. Um, You know, we're living in a time where every single decision that we make today has an impact on our people, on Indigenous people here in Australia and around the world. And, you know, it's not just our decisions. We're not the ones that are, that are really put in a position to be able to, to be a part of some of those decisions sometimes. I have a speech here, but I don't know if I can look at it. Um, it's really hard. I think... I guess what I'm feeling, and I, I have a moment every now and then where you feel that, you feel what drives us. I feel really lucky to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people all across this country, fighting for our land and fighting for our people and for our survival. And we do so because, you know, it's a part of our cultural responsibility, but it's also, we're carrying on the fight that has been fought for so long. And there are times like today where you can really feel that very strong and, and I can feel that in this room right now. So I guess, you know, what um, a lot of the work that I do and what I'm here to talk about today is the fact that um, core to the climate crisis um, is the loss of Indigenous land of our many diverse Indigenous cultures in Australia and around the world. Um, and Indigenous lives and livelihoods. And last night we were um, at a dinner with a lot of the other speakers and the question was asked about what needs to change. And, you know, there's a great deal of, um, of things that need to change, but I think that we need to be looking at them um, in the right way with leadership from the right people. Um, and, you know, for us it's our Indigenous people we need to be changing the way that we see climate change. We need to be changing the way that we see it in terms of the root causes of it, in terms of how those root causes are the causes of so many other issues that we face as humanity. Because climate change is not only 
um, going to determine how we live and where we live, but as humanity, it determines if we live. I think that's the thing that a lot of us don't actually understand. Um, Crystal and I were just, um, we did an interview just earlier and they asked, you know, what is it that non-Indigenous people can do and is this a fight that actually is for all people? And, you know, Crystal said, it's the, if you, if you drink water and if you breathe air, then this is your fight. It's not just our fight. The global response that we've seen to climate change so far um, is an example of the way that we value people in this world. If we valued the lives of black and brown people, of indigenous people, then you know, we wouldn't be in this mess that we're in. And it's a really big mess. Yet it's our communities that face the brunt of it. We face not only the brunt of the impacts of climate change, but we face the direct causes of it. We're facing the destruction of our land. And currently there's decisions, there's proposals on the table for projects that I can't even imagine, you know, if these projects go ahead, how much we're going to lose. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia and Indigenous people around the world have already lost enough every day with the young people that I work with and our aunties and uncles and sisters and brothers. We're fighting for everything that we have left. I try and imagine a world where the lives of all people are valued equally and where together we can stand up for each other, despite the colour of our skin, the amount of money in our pockets, or whether the problem is in our backyard or yours. And as hard as it is to imagine, we really need to be thinking about the way that we build solutions that have justice at the centre of it. And that means justice for Indigenous peoples, which ultimately means justice for everyone. This session's called We Belong to the Land, and um, I think it's, it's um, worthwhile to acknowledge that um, the work that I do um, with SEED and with some of the young people that are um, in the room, um, you know, we called ourselves SEED because it represents our connection to country. It represents a cycle that's been going on for tens of thousands of years of Indigenous people looking after this land sustainably. And it, and it, you know, represents a cycle that we're going to continue going on until we do win this fight for our land. And we can do that. You know, it's really hard standing here and, and it's devastating, you know, but we also have fought for so long and, as Crystal said, you know, it's going to be worth it. It's what our people are telling us. It's going to be worth it. And we do need to keep going. And I think it's moments like these that really do bring us together and... And it's moments like these that we know that we're, I think, at a time in history where we've got no other choice. We are literally left with no other choice but to, to clean up this mess. And I think if everyone in this room doesn't leave here today with some sort of idea of what you're going to do about it and how you're going to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in Australia to fight for our land, to fight for our families, our communities, our children, 
and our culture, then <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> but, you know, we know best that it's not governments, it's not corporations that hold the answers to this. It's people, it's local people on the ground, it's our communities that need to stand up and actually show, you know, those ones who are there making the decisions, what we're fighting for, and actually start building the solutions ourselves. We can't, we can't wait for them. They have a responsibility, but we also do as well. And we need to, we need to stand up and we need to get on with it. And I hope that we can, you know, get into some of the discussion about what this is. I feel like I've just, you know, not even wrote this speech at all. But um, <laughs> anyways, I'm really excited to get into this discussion. And I am really genuine. I hope everyone leaves this room with some sort of idea about what you're going to do about it because it is a collective fight um, and, you know, we need leadership from our people but we also need everyone else to back us. Thank you. Two amazing, very outspoken women who really, I guess, give us a different lens of how environmental destruction, a solution can be found through the caretaking of what we've done for thousands of years on country. And I just want to thank both ladies. You saw the emotion come through. I'm so proud to see such young people taking on obligation. Aboriginal people are born with obligation. That's why you are Aboriginal. You are here for a purpose. And our young people have been handed so much devastation. And we look at climate change or social justice issues and we see the devastating effect on our physical and our social environments in our communities. And that emotion comes from a place where these two young ladies, we say it's a privilege to do the work we do, but at the same time they're carrying a huge load. And I know many, many people carry a huge load, but they've been identified as future leaders. And future leaders need support. The tree trunk has many limbs. And they are the trunk, and we need the limbs to support them. Because that emotion comes from... When you go into a community and you see elders who have been fighting forever for something that they are so truly connected. As your uncle said in that film, this is my country, I'm not going anywhere, we don't immigrate. We can't. We have to stay on country and look after it. And when, you, when I get really heartfelt when I see that emotion because I think of the suicides, because a man could not feed his family, because in Buralula, the leaching of the mine is causing the fish to develop certain bumps and lumps. And that father can't feed his family fish anymore. There is no employment because he doesn't want to cut up his country. And so he suicides because there's, no, there's been devastating effects that this climate change, and I like the term you use, um, Amelia, climate justice. And that's quite a shift in that terminology. If you think of climate change, we think of the discussions we're having global. But when I think of climate justice, I think of social justice and equity. Would that be a fair... Is that the sort of yeah, thing definitely. that you're going out to communities with? Yeah, I mean, well, um, 
climate change isn't a term that's always recognised and neither is climate justice. You know, we have, we have to be aware of the language that we use and, um, you know, at times that means talking about the actual changes that we've seen in the environment, whether it's the river that's dried up down the road, you know, 50 kilometres from a coal mine or, um, or whatever the changes are. But I think climate justice, you know, we see the term used internationally and it's growing more and more in Australia and it recognises that, you know, we can have climate action. Like, sure, that'd be great. That's what a lot of the environmental movement has been fighting for for a long time, more ambitious policies that address, you know, our emissions and all of the different stuff. But if we solve... If we can't solve climate change in a way that's going to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in Australia and Indigenous people around the world if we just, you know, kind of continue business as, as usual and don't actually address the systemic injustices that have caused the crisis in the first place, but also exacerbate every other issue that our communities already face. And so, you know, climate justice, it takes a lot to explain it, but ideally, you know, it means addressing the... Well, you know, building solutions that... Um, that also build justice for all people, not just some. And new economies. There's lots of new economies that mm. can come out of this. And it is people power. I mean, Gandhi was right, wasn't he? You know, I come from northern New South Wales. We had coal seam gas coming in with Madagascar. And our community got together. And when I say our community, I don't just mean the blackfellas. And tens to 20,000 of people living in our region joined hands... And, and set up a camp at Bentley, and we actually stopped it. And it's just an incredible feeling to know that you can make change through being together. Crystal, just with the tar sands, um, when I was reading up, because I hadn't really heard of tar sands, I didn't know what they were, in fact, and when I was reading up on it, I was absolutely devastated to realise that the majority of the oil in the world it actually sits in tar sands. But as yet, it's not as commercial for us to get the oil. But in Canada, they are creating this whole industry where they take the tar sand and whatever they do to get the oil out. For your community, when you put that action into fight, um, the mining company, was it... Outside your community as well, were there other people from Alberta joining you? Um, well, I guess, first of all, we didn't take just one mining company to court. We took every single oil company in the world that's okay. in our traditional territory to court. <laughs> um, so our territory spans 38,960. 73 square kilometers, um, 34,000, I got that number wrong, 34,773, it doesn't even matter, it's large, <laughs> um, is so essentially 39,000 square kilometers and 34,000 square kilometers of that is oil and gas well sites. And so we have every major oil company in the world in, in the Beaver Lake Cree's traditional territory, which um, resides in the uh, Treaty 6 that was entered into in 1876. And so within that 38,000 square kilometres, we obviously have municipalities, we have towns, we have farmers, we, we have... Um, Anybody who's residing in that, it doesn't matter who, who they are, um, race, color, or creed. 
Um, and so, so when we launched litigation <coughs> back in 2008, it didn't become, you know, a big deal at first. Um, you know, when we first launched, it was, you know, we talked about um, over 19,000 treaty rights uh, violations and infringements against our people um, based on our inherent right to hunt, trap, fish, and gather for as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and the rivers flow. Um, that's the literal um, language in, in our treaty that is enshrined in Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution. And so, um, you know, the language has since changed to the cumulative impacts that this industry has had on our traditional territory. And what's happened in, in the past, I'm going to say about a year, um, you know, just being more recent, is that... Um, <coughs> This, this whole, you know, um, climate change issue, um, folks are starting to, to really wake up to the, the fact that um, the, the land is changing. The basic human rights of human beings, um, air beings, land beings, water beings, are, are being impacted. Um, people are actually getting it that, oh, wait, we need to drink water and we need to breathe air to survive. Um, and and that, that's, that's being infringed upon here in, in this area. And so we actually do have a lot of support and we do have um, a lot of non-Indigenous allies that, that are backing us. Um, you know, one quick example is that for three years prior to working for my nation, um, before I resigned, I ran the Alberta um, chapter for Sierra Club Canada mm -hmm. as, as um, a climate and energy campaigner. And so that there shows a very, you know, two very different levels, you know, uh, the most privileged of the privileged, you know, Engos, Sierra Club, and the Beaver Lake Cree or Indigenous people working hand in hand because... Um, our, our people are starting to understand. And here we are, you know, people are starting to understand, you know, 37% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions come out of Alberta. 22% of those emissions come from the Alberta oil sands. So when you put that into perspective, people are, are finally getting up and standing up. Frightening. But... Thank you for that explanation. Um, we're going to go to some questions. We've got about 15 minutes for questions, and I believe there's mics up on either side down here. If you would like a question, to ask a question. Thank you. Hi. Um, I just want to thank Bretsby first for sharing your experiences. It was incredible because just of how much emotion was in it. Um, last year, I did some work with some indigenous communities in Malaysia who were being denied access to their traditional lands because the government had turned their traditional lands into, without consultation into a forest reserve, which we'd associate with the conservation idea, but their law has a specific type of forest reserve, which is reserved land to promote the economic interests of the country, which basically translates to it's being turned into a palm oil plantation. Amelia, you spoke about the, how we don't just, that we absolutely need to switch from a carbon economy to a no carbon economy. Um, but governments often seem to fail to understand that being low carbon and supporting the environment is not, and having a strong economy, they're not mutually exclusive concepts. 
how do you think both to all of you how do you think we should go about making in, making that conceptual switch from understanding that those concepts are actually quite compatible if that makes sense <laughs> like the idea that it's possible to both have a strong economy and still be completely supportive of the environment is it possible Oh, no, I know it's possible, but how do we convince governments who seem to not understand that it's possible so often? <laughs> we need to move away from seeing, um, you know, the constant need to grow. Like, we live in a very greedy world um, that, you know, um, the system of capitalism um, tells us that we need to, to grow and to make money and to, you know, um, constantly be getting more and more and more. Um, and we need to see that that doesn't fit with, you know, humanity surviving in this world. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways. I think we need to build the new economies that um, are out there. The, the renewable energy revolution has already started, but we obviously need to do it in a way that, um, that we're very clear with who's benefiting from it um, and who's being impacted by it. Um, and who's a part of making the decision about what it looks like. Um, and, you know, it's not just about renewable energy, it's all of the other um, economies that are out there as well, um, whether that's, you know, economies in our own communities um, at a local level, um, but it's also just, you know, exploring what the other alternatives are and whether it's renewable energy, whether it's getting our people out on country, you know, um, <laughs> rehabilitating this place, it's... Um, pretty devastating the situation that we're in and the amount of jobs that can be created by having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people out there doing, um, you know, as rangers, as um, people rebuilding our, um, our country. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot. I think it's very complex, but I think we need to um, obviously address that we live in a capitalist society um, and we need to break that down. Good question. I have a quick question for both of you. First of all, Crystal, I've even heard that the tar sands, were they to go ahead, could actually raise the climate change by one degree, just those alone. But my better question is, do you believe that with the election of Prime Minister Trudeau to the Canadian government, your chances of success are greater than they were prior? <laughs> Oh, I knew somebody was going to ask that. <laughs> He's increasing. And I want to be positive. I do. <laughs> but we had the first minister's meeting happen. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I lost a day. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. I don't know. A couple days ago. I'm just going to say that. Um, sometime this week, we had the first minister's meeting in Vancouver. The first minister's meeting on federal policy on climate change. Our leaders were not invited to the table. Wow. So then the next day, two days later, yesterday, they, some chiefs from down south in Alberta, the neighbors to the ones that gifted Stephen Harper a headdress, a war bonnet, turned around, their neighbors turned around and gifted Trudeau with a war bonnet, right after he pulled that stunt in, in Vancouver. 
where our people were excluded from sitting at the table, the first ones to experience the impacts to climate change, and the, the people that should be sitting at the table to participate in, in these, these policies and these models. And so, you know, um, I guess I'm optimistic, but the more horse and pony shows I see, the less optimistic I get. Um, but at the same time, we also have our people that are getting up <coughs> and saying, hey, hey, yeah. something is really wrong here and we need to fix it. And we need to start looking at this dying economy and these stranded assets and we need to start focusing on indigenous economic um, sovereignty. Yeah. And that includes, um, you know, economic development, but in a sustainable way while maintaining um, uh, natural law. Yeah, thank you. And I'll just keep praying for you as for us. And Amelia, I have a quick question for you too. I was up recently protesting at Malls Creek against the Whitehaven destruction there. And I know that the Gomorrah people have already lost 37 of 38 uh, sacred sites there, and there's one left, Lawl as well, that they're desperately trying to hold on to, and there's a live site. And I was just wondering, what do you think are the best things we can do? Write to ministers, protest, what's the way that we can all, as those that want to try and save it, can do to have our voices heard, I suppose? I mean, you've already said some of it. Um, as Ani Rhoda mentioned, you know, this, we need to be building our, our, our people's movement. Um, to be fighting these um, huge projects, huge corporations, governments that, you know, they're in bed with. Um, and I think by, you know, whether it's on the ground directly, um, you know, locking yourself to that um, truck before it goes in there or whatever it is that, you know, we're already seeing um, many people, um, Gomori people joined by others. Um, whether it's that or whether it's, you know... Um, uh, getting behind other movements that ha have created platforms for people to take action. Um, Arnie, uh, Arnie Roder's um, alluded to Borolula that, you know, are facing a big, big lead and zinc mine that they're trying to um, get closed down. We have up in Queensland um, the Wangan and Jagalingu people who are fighting for, um, for their country um, and to, you know, fighting against Adani, who's basically, you know, wanting to come in and take over this land. And it's not... It's... it's impacting the people in these places, but are also, you know, if, if that project goes ahead, people need to understand that it's, it's communities that are directly impacted, and then it's the communities that are indirectly impacted as well. And so by joining the, the um, fights, whatever it is, the platform, you know, you can't do everything, um, but if you can focus your energy on one particular place, and if for you that's, you know, um, fighting Whitehaven Coal, or whether it's fighting Adani, or whatever it is, um, it's really putting your energy in that and taking the leadership from our people. Um, and, yeah, being a part of it. Thank you. We might go over to number one, Mark. For the quick, yes? Hi. Um, I'm a student at Macquarie University, and there's a couple of programs there that um, focus on the education of Indigenous um, youth. I was working with the science one. I'm a biology student. Um, and looking at the, um, the similarities, or the essentially the same things in Western and Indigenous science, um, that, you know, the things that we have in common and that Indigenous knowledge is and always has been grounded in science, even though it's not published in academic language. Um, looking at those similarities, and I also had someone 
um, an Indigenous man tell me that if I cared about my country and if I cared about the land that I lived on, then in some way I was also Indigenous. Um, I was just wondering what you thought of that, um, that idea and if we did adopt more of that, looking at those similarities, whether you thought that was a strategy. <laughs> so we all come from somewhere. Yeah. You're not from here. No. You come from somewhere. You have roots somewhere. And before those roots were damaged by the colonization, um, there was original ways of thinking, of knowing and being that were connected to the land. I bet my life on that. It's up to you to go back and find that. When we talk about decolonization, our people talk about decolonization. We don't, it's not exclusive of, of our visitors. It's inclusive. Our language has no word for visitor. So back in the old world, if you'd arrived, you would have been given a family name, placed with a family and been given a role in society. And that still occurs in many communities across Australia. When you go to work in those communities, you are given a name, a family, and a place in that society. And, and that's a way to start. That's a responsibility. Thank you. <laughs> We've got a few more minutes, so we'll go back to this mic over here, number two. Yes, sir. Yeah, hello. My, my name's Phil. Um, my uh, father's Waka Waka, my mum, Kalkadoon. I'm living in uh, Darkenjung country now, Central Coast, and I've uh, been involved in community and in the environment movement up there, and I've worked with some really good, not good people, non-Indigenous people, if I may use that term. Um, I, I'd just like to uh, commend the three of you ladies on the work that you're doing. Thanks, Uncle. Uh, personally, to uh, Amelia, we need more young people like you. Uh, but I just want to share with you uh, an Aboriginal story and a way of thinking. And uh, I'll be very, very brief. It's, uh, it did, Isn't that we, terrible? We all know this. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> you Uncle. Know, it's that, that tangential thinking, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we all know the story of Tiddalik the Frog and how mm. Tiddalik the Frog drinks up all the water and grows with greed. So, uh, you know, it just reminds me of some of the uh, corporations the Aboriginal response to that was to tickle the frog. So I just want some maybe... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, they threw beers and stones out. It didn't work, did it? So uh, they, they, uh, they made the frog laugh and the frog gave up. So, Get him where it hurts. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted, you know, maybe your response to, uh, you know, how, how, how do we tickle the, uh, the, the frog, the corporations, the governments, you know, to, uh, the, to sort of change their way of thinking? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways. Um, I feel pretty lucky to be a part of, um, you know, a whole movement of young people who are doing this all across the country and um, as much as possible, we try and do it in a positive way that, um, you know, can be really fun, but it also has a huge impact and, um, and makes the, you know, corporation or, you know, government um, as well. Um, feel threatened and then obviously be influenced to um, make some sort of decision that we're calling on them to do. 
Um, you know, whether that's dressing up as Nemo and trying to get in front of the cameras on the political trail in front of, you know, the Prime Ministers, or um, whether it's handing roses to bank staff trying to get them to not invest in projects that are destroying our country and climate. Um, all of the different fun and creative ways. Um, and I guess what we've learnt with some of the bigger banks with some of the campaigning um, campaigns that we've been running is that, you know, they... Different to governments in a way, they have a responsibility to their customers um, and to their shareholders and um, they say that they have a responsibility to um, or they respect Indigenous people and uh, all for their, you know, employment strategy and this and that. But um, then I, I guess just one example, I went to the... Um, the Westpac AGM, and it was, um, you know, we'd recognised that Westpac hadn't publicly ruled out funding, um, uh, funding any part of the um, Carmichael Coal Mine and Adani's project, Abbott Point um, Coal Port expansion, and they changed their um, their uh, climate policy to say that they'd limit global warming to two degrees, which ultimately means not investing in that project. Um, but they haven't publicly ruled it out. And um, my colleague um, from the Australian Youth Climate Coalition asked a question directly to that. And then I got up and asked a question saying that, you know, I'm aware that you respect the rights of Indigenous peoples, but do you act like, you know, what is your stance going to be um, in terms of respecting Indigenous peoples when they say no? Like, what part of no means yes. Um, and uh, the response from the CEO was, oh, well, we have a really great Indigenous employment strategy, blah, 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 blah. And I said, Ex uh, excuse me, that's not the question that I asked you. Um, and, you know, he didn't really have much of an answer to that. And so I guess it's putting <coughs> pressure on them in a way that, um, that hurts, but also, you know, being smart about it and going about it in ways that hopefully will get them to change their minds and put their reputation at risk. Um, and their, their finances at risk as well. We've got one minute left. I'm so sorry, horrible being timekeeper. So we'll go to this question. Quick question and then we'll get you in as um, well. My name's Gwenna Stanley. I'm a Gomorrah sovereign. How are you, love? In relation to our lot, so I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respect to the sister girl there coming all the way over. Um, in relation to, you kept referring to yourselves as the um, sovereign body and... How did your people deal with the, um, being that body that looks over all these issues? I you heard um, sister, one of the ladies there talking about what's happening in our country with the coal seam gas. Since the 1960s, 1970s, we've also been fighting a biological and environmental warfare against the Monsanto, the Santos. We've had those issues with our cotton fields in here, in our areas. Um, not only these have led to many deaths in our communities, but again, the environmental destruction to the rivers and the, um, to our land in, in which these areas are um, built on. Moria is one of the largest rural industries of agriculture within us in the world the most, most <coughs> abundant. How did your people establish your body or your sovereign or as your nations be able to engage with government? Because unfortunately here in Australia we have so many that are overrunning each other's body and as sovereigns we are now standing up and looking at this issue but how do we deal with it on a... Um, instead of a two-tyre system, we need to be at the loggerheads with this government in relation to writing these legislations and policies in regards to what they're actually doing on our countries. Because unfortunately, like you, um, you mentioned it earlier that you had one group over here 
the Kazos down here, give this one a head stone, then you had this one. So you're sort of, what they've done is actually created and broke our dreaming lines and our song lines. So mm. out is your people, Crystal. Out did you form and establish this body that enables you to speak with government in relations to having to see? Because like I said, we're not only the environmental but also a biological warfare that has been happening on our people since 1788. And how do we decolonise that system within that to be able to get where do we need to go with this and how do we create that economical sustainability and environmental and employment within our local regions. That's a really difficult... That, that actually... Um, I, I actually want to talk to you after because that is a, there's, there's such a long answer to that. But in short, the, unfortunately, the one difference that makes um, you know, Canada and, and those 11 treaty regions different than, than here... Um, is that we have those treaties that are enshrined in the Canadian Constitution, but we also have, um, we have unceded territory in, in the province of British Columbia, where, where those, uh, our Indigenous relatives there, are asserting their, their Aboriginal rights and title to their unceded territory, um, and are winning, um, winning cases up at the, the Supreme Court level, which is your high court here. Um, of the, the most recent one is the Chilcotin decision that gave those, those people on that unceded territory um, uh, rights and title to, to their land, which, um, you know, and so Beaver Lake is, is um, you know, you talked about agriculture. So when I talk about the litigation, um, we're, we actually launched this litigation not specifically at tar sands. It's the cumulative impacts of industry on our traditional territory. Yep. Yeah, but we'll, we'll talk Not after. with your family, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go with the last question, then we really have to wrap not, up, It's not really a question at this stage, because I know oh, you're out of time, but I just want to make time. a comment. Mm. And I think it's a comment yeah. which is partly a question. Listening to what you said here has restored my faith in the fact that the social really counts. And what I'd like to just say, as somebody who's a long-term battler, both in the feminist and now in the Indigenous area, can we please avoid putting up economic goals and get back to the idea that society is about social goals and social well-being, and economics needs to serve the social, not dominate it? And I'd just like to sort of put that up just as a final comment, because I think it under, underpins everything that we're trying to do over this day and over much broader issues about creating the world that you are talking about that we all want to live in. Thank you. Thank you. And can we please thank our speakers, Crystal and Millie.